listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Ron. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Good. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. And if you're uh, watching on YouTube, it's the Non-Zero Channel. And if you are watching on YouTube, you might consider clicking the like button if you if you like it, um, or if you don't. Um, and you are Ron Campius, a journalist of long standing. For a while, you worked for the Associated Press in various bureaus around the world, including London and Jerusalem. Um, also, while in Israel, you worked for the Jerusalem Post for a while. Now you are the Washington Bureau Chief of JTA, a very venerable media organization, in fact, it's been around so long that the letters stand for Jewish Telegraphic Agency, founded in 1917. I it just I just looked it up and realized that's the same year as the Balfour Declaration, which declared Britain's intention to uh, support the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine. I assume that's a coincidence, right? Yeah, it is a coincidence. I think it was founded because. Um, you know, there was a lot of coverage coming out of Europe of the devastation of the First World War. Um, I, in fact, I know it's founded for this reason. And Jewish communities in the West that were in a position to assist Jews uh, who were affected by the First World War wanted specific information about what was happening to those Jewish communities. So it wasn't related to the Balfour Declaration. It was more related. Well, of course, then the Balfour Declaration was related to the First World War. So kind of tangentially. But yeah. 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 Okay. Um... And uh, I notice you're a real workhorse. I mean, I go to the JTA site, and you're just your byline is uh, everywhere. I was there was one piece you didn't write. It was about uh, what is it? Twenty Jewish basketball players to keep an eye on this year or something. <laughs> I was disappointed. I was hoping that was that would be you. We could talk about that. <laughs> no. no, we have a we have a dead for the first time. I think in our history, we have a dedicated sports reporter. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the first time I've been, since I've been working here, which is twenty okay. years. I'm sure that I'm sure that piece did well. Yeah. Um, I, I looked at it. Uh, <laughs> so listen, today uh, is November 7th. That is exactly one month after Hamas uh, shocked a lot of people by uh, inflicting large scale atrocities on Israelis. Um, so I thought it would be good to kind of take stock with you. I'm I'm uh, I'm especially interested in, you know, uh, Things within Israel, the politics, the psychology, but also uh, how this is being processed in uh, what is called the Jewish community, although that is, you know, always the word community is often an oversimplification. Certainly yeah. uh, in this case, uh, not everyone is in agreement. Um, uh, but maybe we should start out. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering how you processed the news of it. I assume you know a lot of people in Israel, I don't know if you have family there, but uh, it's one of those, it's kind of like the 9-11 moment, except the 9-11 moment, I guess, was more distinct. It's like you hear that a plane has run into the World Trade Center and that's, you already sense the magnitude, whereas this, you know, the news for some people rolled out slowly and I, I don't know, how did it hit you? So I was, uh, <laughs> my wife had corralled uh, our adult sons into agreeing to a hike in the Shenandoah, which is where near where I live. And, um, sort of we went on Friday and, uh, uh, you know, the kind of thing I was looking forward to it because it was the kind of things we would do when they were little. <laughs> but uh, and I woke up on Saturday morning and my phone was blowing up. And so um, 
I had to, uh, you know, I, I'm one of the few non-Shabbat observant people at JTA. I'm also uh, Hebrew fluent. So, uh, I, you know, I just knew that I was going to be the person who was going to have to dive into this. Uh, and I couldn't get in the cabin we were at in the uh, in the resort in you know big meadow resort. I couldn't get Wi-Fi, so I walked over to the actual lodge where I could, and it was just uh, you know I, I had my earphones plugged in and I was just listening to the radio, and um, there were just live immediate accounts of people who had been affected by this. The first being um, a man who had you know saying, "I'm calling the radio because I want inf- if anybody can go down to check my mother-in-law's home." The last thing I uh, heard was she said her 79-year-old husband was being led away and my wife and my daughters were visiting her. And then I just went on to, uh, I logged onto my wife's phone on the laptop and I saw that she's in Khan Yunus, which is a town in the Gaza mm-hmm. Strip. So he, he, you know, he didn't want to actually say it out loud, but his wife and children had been kidnapped. And in mm-hmm. fact, that's, that's what happened. And then uh, they had a firsthand witness describe what had happened at the, um, supernova song you know music uh festival the rave and you know just in the flattest and, and this is like this is my training at the ap which is where i you know i started it uh in wire service journalism once at the ap it was just listening to the radio translating quickly from hebrew to english and then shaping the narratives into stories um and uh and so then yeah this man was just describing in flat tones yes we managed to get away because our car was nearby i saw people whose car wasn't nearby run into the orchards they they tried to climb trees to avoid, evade the gunfire. The, the uh, terrorists threw stun grenades. The people fell on to, and fell, and they, the, the terrorists shot them. And I was just putting this into a narrative, and I put it into a story. And you know, then the next day when I was reading the story, I was like, I can't believe these things happened. This has never mm-hmm. happened in 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 Israel in my lifetime. I mean, there were similar stories of uh, this kind of carnage before the establishment of the state of Israel, but not. Not, nothing like this. And and like you said, I do have family. I have friends in Israel. And of course, I was like immediately shocked into wondering how they were doing because I was so in the in the news head. Um, and it's just, you know, the, the, I knew the country would 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 never, never be the same uh, after this. I just uh, we had a little um, a Zoom call for uh, our uh, our readers, um, I think, on Sunday. As soon as Sunday, and and I was saying, I, I said, you want to know what the long term effects of this will be? Well, you know, the this, these are the kinds of attacks that occurred before 1948, and um, and you had the, you know, you you had the um, uh, the uh, the expulsion of uh, of Palestinian Arabs in 1948. That's the kind of thing that this fueled. Whether that was uh, they were spurred by uh, other Arab. Uh, countries telling them to leave or whether they were spurred by, uh, you know, it's a mix, the ethnic cleansing, the allegations of ethnic cleansing. But you also had more, I think, saliently, like until 1965, uh, Israeli Arabs lived under martial law. That wasn't a, um, that wasn't well, that's not a well-known fact, but it was because I think of the, uh, of the fears that uh, were embedded in Israelis Mm -hmm. because of, um, of what happened and in Israeli Jews because of what happened. And And, and just, just to be clear, they could vote, in t- uh, but they were subject to military courts and military control, isn't it? They were subject to curfew, for instance. Yeah, that yeah. was like uh, okay. you know, one of them. Okay, sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Yeah, they could vote. They could absolutely vote. Yeah. But I'm, I'm saying, like, in terms of, of of the fear that Israelis had of the uh, the Palestinian, the indigenous, you know, the, the, the Palestinian population mm-hmm. that stayed, um, 
they were uh, that that's how it manifested. So, you know, I'm saying that's I was saying that that's now that thinking about it weeks later, I'm thinking, you know, there are, are there are any number of scenarios that could arise out of this conflict uh, right now. But in, in but nonetheless, I think it, it was immediately evident that this was going to be game changing. Yeah. And I mean, already you are seeing uh, things that are analogous to some things that happened in 48. I mean, on the, in the West Bank, we've seen an acceleration of what I think deserves the term uh, ethnic cleansing. I mean, you know, settlers uh, terrorizing villages uh, and, and the rate of uh, Palestinians fleeing villages has has increased. Um, and then, of course, in Gaza, you know, there's the... Uh, they're leaving the north. I think it, it's fair to say a lot of people in Israel, including Bibi, would be happy for them to go all the way into Egypt. Uh, that may be hard for him to arrange. But I mean, do you think uh, do you think I'm uh, uh, going too far in drawing these analogies? Um, I mean, I think that, yeah, you know, uh, in the sense, uh, you know, the, the settlers, yes, who are trying to scare Palestinians into leaving their homes in the West Bank. They want ethnic cleansing, whether they're, they're practically able to carry it out, I, I think is another matter, whether to the degree they have government backing. As we, you know, I think in terms of the mm -hmm. Biden administration and the pressures it's putting on Israel in the current circumstance, one of the most acute pressures is, is on on uh, the government um, cracking down on any kind of uh, action like that. And, you know, and the um, uh, whether or not Netanyahu cracks down, he uh, he's under pressure from the far right in his own government. He um, um he's also otherwise occupied with a with, with a war but um you know that i think that, that there's like i think there's an implicit pressure i don't think anybody in the biden administration would dare say it even in private but there's an implicit pressure on by on bb to uh to form a coalition with um you know to kick the the far right out of the, out of the government keep Gantz, benny Gantz, the centrist and pull in uh yet lapid the center-left character uh figure in in israeli politics that kind of government would uh, certainly stop this kind of thing from happening, but that kind of government doesn't exist. I don't know if there's a will or the capability to stop that kind of thing from happening. So right now, it's settlers want to commit ethnic cleansing, whether they actually commit it is another sure. matter. In the Gaza Strip, uh, I, I just don't, I don't see it. Um, I, like like you said, I don't see them going into Egypt because Egypt doesn't want them in there. You know, there are historical reasons why um, why no Arab country wants to take Palestinians in because they they stay forever they they don't they they um uh and it's 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 uh it's you know there are all sorts of uh, reasons they don't want that one is they don't want Israel to absolve itself of responsibility for the um for those Palestinians the other is that it's uh it's they depending on the government and the type of government they don't really um assimilate and um so they've assimilated in Jordan they haven't really you know depending on which wave of Palestinians they haven't really assimilated in Lebanon they are in Syria, and so uh, they don't want that kind of um, uh, of um, of political reality. So, yeah, I just don't well, see that. I don't yeah. see anybody opening up. For and them. I mean, you know, Sisi, the the dictator in Egypt, is threatened by the ideology that Hamas represents. So, I mean, he certainly, even if he wasn't averse to having some Palestinians, he, he certainly wouldn't want uh, many people prominent in Hamas. Uh, so. Um, the uh, on that issue of uh, the coalition in Israel, what is it that is uh, preventing? If in theory, Bibi could Bibi uh, sustain his role in the coalition and drop the far right and still have a co governing coalition? Are the he numbers could, there? Actually, 
He could have, you know, he, he could fashion, I think, I think the numbers are that he could fashion a coalition from Gantz's party and from uh, the ultra-Orthodox parties, you know, and the ultra-Orthodox tend to be pretty, now, nowadays, tend to be pretty far right-wing, but that's not their main issue. They, their main issue is the sustenance of the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel. And so he could get that and he could, he could have the kind mm-hmm. of government, I think, that, um, uh, that the Biden administration, for instance, would be much happier with and, and under which he could operate more freely to prevent the kind of um, uh, settler-provoked unrest that's going on in parts of the um, mm-hmm. in parts of the West Bank. Um, but uh, the, uh, the 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 more um, efficient way to do that, to, to say for, for, for Netanyahu to say that he has a cross-partisan coalition is to bring in uh, Lapid. But I think, you know, what's what's keeping him from doing it is that uh, once the, the the dust settles down, he had a pretty good thing going with his coalition in terms of uh, passing laws that were uh, that might eventually keep him out of uh, keep him from getting a, uh, a criminal sentence uh, right. against him, and also uh, you know passing laws that I think he's ideologically committed to in terms of limiting the uh, the judiciary. He might be still mm-hmm. looking forward to that. Uh, I don't know what they say. He says he's not going to resign, but he's not explaining why he's not. Um, jettisoning um uh, far right people in his cabinet who are uh who are making this thing more complicated i mean one i think it's it's worth uh noting that of the many reasons <laughs> i like to say like i had the one relative in israel uh the kind of cousin-in-law he's a husband a nice guy a husband of my first cousin who votes left and he votes could. and every time i would go there he would try and talk me into like why netanyahu was the um was you know was the figure that needed to leave Israel lead Israel at this moment, and I have to say, his conservative politics have not changed, but he has like become the most like um, adamant anti Netanyahu person, and it has to do with the the failure of security. Right. And one of the reasons for that perceived failure of security on October the seventh is that so much military was uh, um, rededicated to the West Bank mm-hmm. in order to. Uh, to secure the area because it was becoming volatile in part because of Netanyahu's um, far right wing partners and and their allies and the actions the actions that they were taking out like in Hawara uh, the West Bank village that was um, you know uh, attacked by settlers and and so that that kind of diversion like they they, they let there are other reasons they they let the ball you know they they dropped the ball on Gaza but that's perceived to be um, one of them. Mm-hmm. The um, there's a a kind of related question that just occurred to me a few days ago. For months and months and months, uh, everyone to Bibi's left have been has been wishing he were not the prime minister and trying right. to find and 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 I wondered, you know, there is I I gather there's this I gather it's still intact an an unspoken rule or at least an a, an informal rule that the Jewish parties will not get together with the Arab parties to form a governing coalition, right? That, 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 that's basically just a norm in Israeli politics, as I understand it. No longer. It. I mean, the, you know, the um, uh, Mansour Abbas, um, the head of the Ram party, uh, formed a coalition with uh, Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid and, uh, for a year and a half. Like, and the, the terms of the coalition that was that no member of his party would be a member of the cabinet. And um, the uh, no uh, member of the party with Arab uh, that has yeah, Arabs, in but it. they were you know they had coalition privileges. They chaired committees in the Knesset. Uh, they had a say in the in the budget. They were members of the governing coalition, mm-hmm. 
And, so, uh, and, so, and that broke the taboo. I mean, broke the taboo on non-Zionist Arab parties becoming part of the uh, becoming, becoming part of a co governing coalition. But it wasn't feasible as of some months ago for everyone to the left of all the Jewish parties, the left of uh, BB to get together with to, to recruit all the Arab parties. And I mean, that would have been enough numerically, right? No, no, that's the thing. Wouldn't, it wouldn't. I mean, they made a, a big strategic mistake in the elections. Uh, the left did it a, a year ago, uh, because as, as you probably know, like there's a threshold system. You have to get 3.5 percent, I think, of the, okay. the vote to get into the Knesset, and that gives you about two seats. And then um, the uh, and so, but you can do vote sharing with other parties. And so, uh, the Labour Party, uh, which is small anyway, refused to do a. Um, vote sharing with merits which is a smaller even more left-wing party mm -hmm. and um i think uh i forget which uh balad i think was uh a, an arab party that had been part of what had been called the joint list of arab parties and they decided they didn't want to do for vote sharing with them anymore because they thought they would meet the threshold and they would get their own couple of knesset members and then both mis both were like miscalculations so netanyahu essentially got the same vote last year as he got in 2021 but because of these decisions by these parties uh, he got more Knesset members. So there's just okay. there was no way for the left to actually form a coalition, um, even with the Arab parties uh, after uh, the election last year. OK, now, in terms of uh, the response to the Hamas attack, how, how unified are Israelis on that? In other words, in supporting the current uh, bombing and invasion of Gaza, opposing a ceasefire, you know, more or less taking Bibi's line on this. Is that is that just a matter of clear consensus in Israel? I think like a, yeah, I think mean, I think there's like a small group on the left that, uh, that would support a ceasefire. But yeah, there's a consensus. That, you know, there'll be, I think, a reckoning, uh, you know, in terms of the um, or there might be a reckoning in terms of the tactics that Netanyahu is, or the, the government and the IDF are using right now in the Gaza Strip in terms of the aerial bombing and the devastation that's uh, causing. But generally, there no, there's opposition to a ceasefire. There, they don't. There's no, there's no um, uh, taste for a ceasefire am, among Israelis because they they don't uh, they don't see Hamas as uh, as uh, as abiding by a ceasefire. I mean, there was a ceasefire until October six, as people will tell you. There was a la the last right. mini conflagration was in 2021. There was a ceasefire after that, and Hamas broke that ceasefire and. You know, it's it's not just that they broke the ceasefire, uh, and maybe we can figure out ways to enforce a ceasefire and keep it going. But they broke it in a way that suggests that they want perpetual war, uh, and not just perpetual war, but uh, a perpetual war that includes atrocities committed against civilians. That was the that was the message I think that Hamas sent Israel on October the seventh, and that's not the kind of message that is amenable for Israelis to a ceasefire. If you look at Amir Tibon, the Haaretz. Uh, uh, reporter who was caught for nine hours in his house in a, near the Gaza Strip. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So he put out a he put out a, a thread today on Twitter. And I think it, it accompanies an article he wrote on Haaretz on why a, a ceasefire is just, um, um, you know, it's, it's not something that can be contemplated right now for for most Israelis. Yeah. And, and nobody is uh, I mean, well, I mean, first of all, I'd say in terms of near term security over the next few years, uh, given how much Hamas has already been degraded, and given the fact that October seventh could only happen because of a of a, of a major lapse in Israeli security that presumably would not be repeated over the next few years, it's not clear to me that Israel can't be secure for the next few years, uh, even after ceasefire. But 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 also, but but my main question is: 
is no one in Israel making the argument that ultimately what a group feed, like Hamas feeds on is hatred of Israel and you are breeding massive quantities of that now. I, I cannot imagine that there are many 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old males in Gaza who will not, after what's going on now, for the rest of their lives, uh, celebrate the deaths of Israelis, frankly. I mean, that's just human psychology. And that's not to say that they are support Hamas. It's possible to, it's possible to even not like Hamas because of this provocation and yet hate the people who are killing you at this moment. But but my right. main question is, is anyone that that's just not an argument in Israel that actually there is such a thing as root causes in the world and we should keep those in mind? Uh, it's not so much an argument. I think it's back of mind for um, uh, for people who are actually managing, trying to manage this conflict. I do think that there are people in government and the security establishment who take that into uh, into consideration. And I think that they would, like you said, they would argue, first of all, that um, uh, as opposed to some people on the right wing here in the States, they would they would note that you, as you have noted, that Hamas is not popular with Palestinians and especially with with Gaza Palestinians. But uh, there are circumstances uh, in which its actions are popular because of precisely what you said, because of the devastation that they're seeing now. But that kinds of ebbs and 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 flows. If you look at uh, polls after something like this, I don't know if it just keeps on flowing, if it ever ebbs again. But mm -hmm. the um, but you've seen that when there's that in terms of polling, that when there's quiet. Um, the uh, the the idea of taking military action or any kind of terrorist action against Israel actually it it, it the uh, the support for it drops among um, uh, among Palestinians and mm -hmm. and the reason is that they don't want the um, uh, uh, they 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 don't want the devastation that immediately follows uh, you know I think that there's like a there's an understand in the in the heat of this moment I don't think you're going to get a lot of Palestinians understanding anything that Israel is doing. Right. I think that that when things subside, there will be an understanding to that, that Hamas, the, the what what Hamas did on October seventh had inevitable uh, consequences. Uh, you know, and they, and it might be hopeful, but I think uh, you're seeing, and it might be like quixotic even, but I think you're seeing hopes among the Palestinian, the Israeli establishment, that uh, that they'll be able uh, that the Palestinians will be able to replace. Hamas with a leadership that is um, uh, more amenable to a coexistence, a living uh, situation with something further down the line. I yeah, don't know. Just, you, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying, I think that task is greatly complicated uh, to the extent that uh, th that Gazans uh, hate Israelis for what's going on now. And, and I mean, uh, that's what I'm suggesting. I mean, the whole idea of eliminating Hamas, I mean, I suppose you can do that. But, you know, there's a long history of uh, more radical groups arising right. uh, in yeah. response to, you know, Israel went into Lebanon to clean out the PLO. That's where, and Hezbollah, Hezbollah. arose in yeah. response to that. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, you and I, last time we had a conversation, I said something that I think you agreed with. I said, I get the sense that the view in, in Israel is, look, they're going to hate us no matter what. And I don't think they, I don't think I was talking just about Palestinians. I think I was talking about kind of maybe more broadly Arabs and maybe in a certain sense, large chunks of the world. But I said, I think there's this view in Israel. They're going to hate us no matter what. And they might, by us, they might be referring to hatred of Israelis. They might be referring to anti-Semitism. But however they frame it, I said, I think 
there is this belief, and that's one reason that uh, the responses to terrorism do not pay much attention to the kind of argument I'm making here. Is that is that part of the psychology? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that there is like a a different, a, a, you know, and you're seeing it. I think uh, in in reactions among some Israelis right now to what's going on at the. Um, the uh, and, and you're seeing it also, like I said, in terms of the um, the argument on the uh, on the on the Jewish right wing here that uh, the Palestinians support Hamas, you know, and they, uh, you know, Alan Dershowitz, who would probably hate being called right wing, but he made it like a and and they always they always have the same kind of like um, uh, fake out where they say they overwhelmingly supported Hamas in the last election. The last election was in 2006. Uh, mm -hmm. It was weirdly gerrymandered. I forget why, but the, yeah, so they did get an overwhelming amount of the seats, but they actually got 44 to 45% of the vote. Mm -hmm. So there's, <laughs> both things are illusions, but um, I, I do think that that's, that's the trend, especially in a war like this, especially when, you, like, when you're faced with the kind of crimes that the, uh, that the terrorists committed on October mm -hmm. the 7th, there's a sense that this must be so deeply embedded in the culture you know, like I said, things I, I, I expect that that certain hatreds among the Palestinians will abate. I expect that certain hatreds among the Israelis will abate. Um, you can say I think they said three thousand, and now they estimate three thousand uh, Hamas terrorists invaded on the, that day. That's three thousand people out of two million. It's uh, you know, it's obviously in no way representative, but it it feels representative right now. And uh, I think for a lot of people, and so they do have that sort of, they're going to hate us anyway. And that extends to the, uh, you know, that extends to the international community to a certain extent as well. Anything that's, uh, that's said is like, mm -hmm. okay, they're doing this only, they're not doing this because they're being rational. They're not doing this, you know, Biden is not, uh, and I, this is among a minority of Israelis, Biden's not asking for humanitarian pauses uh, it's because he's subject to the, uh, you know, he's he's being pressured by the uh, Israel-hating left wing. That's why he's asking for it, not because it's actually a, a practical uh, recommendation in order to actually help uh, accelerate uh, an end to this uh, conflict. Mm -hmm. The, um, yeah, the uh, the 2006 Hamas election is, uh, it was 2006, the, the one that they yeah. won? You know, they won the I parliamentary was... elections, uh, right. and then they ousted. Fatah from the Gaza Strip in 2007. Yeah, Palestine. although, I mean, I would say two things. I paid a lot of attention to what they were saying after that election. And they were making kind of, when asked, well, can you now that you've got a responsible position, you, you're going to be in governance, can you talk to Israel? Some of their leaders were making noises like, yes. I mean, they weren't yeah. saying, yeah, we're, we're disavowing the charter, right? But And now we're friends of Zionism. But they were saying, you know, they were definitely making noises that a diplomatically minded person might have picked up on. Our response was the opposite. Now, we had said, oh, sure, it's fine if they run in the election. And then when they won, we said, oh, but winning's not OK. And in fact, we actually uh, I mean, you said they ousted Fatah. Well, we supported uh, an armed. Uh, there's a good piece in Vanity Fair from a long time ago about this. We we supported uh using armed force against them to dislodge them from the, the, the position in governance they had won through an election. I would say the U.S. as much as, and the Israel, with probably with the Israeli government, as much as anything, uh, started that civil war. They played a big role. Yeah. They yeah. almost had to talk Fatah into fighting it, as I understand yeah. it. It was like, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and they got Egypt to supply weapons, I think. And so, and, and the reason I bring this up, it's not just like what might have been, but I think there's a connection uh, between that reaction and the one 
I'm kind of criticizing now the, uh, the, the there's a kind of essentialism about like, okay, Hamas is this thing and it is the source of evil and it will never change. And as long as it's there, you know, it's hopeless. And so I, I just, I guess I would say, in addition to the fact that I think hatred is what they feed on. And if you have less of that, they're probably going to be less successful. But the other thing is, the people who run Hamas, they're humans. And if you have a cynical view of human nature, you can imagine them being slowly coaxed uh, into more moderate positions, at least I can. I mean, especially if you try to cultivate goodwill among the underlying uh, populace. So, I mean, I would say that the way the U.S. reacted to that 2006 election is not totally unrelated to the way we're reacting now in thinking that eliminating Hamas is going to solve the problem once and for all. Yeah, I know. I think there, there, there's something to that. Um, uh, I, you know, like you, like you said before, that you replace, uh, you, you, you get rid of one uh, radical element and it's replaced by an even more radical element, as we've seen in Iraq, in Iran, and and over the years in other situations. Um, uh, on the other hand, I mean, uh, I think that there is a, um, I mean, first of all, there's also this, you know, one, another thing that uh, the people are in Israel, Israelis are very angry at Netanyahu for is the uh, the weird sort of system he's set up to uh, to keep uh, Hama, to keep Gaza from blowing its top, which was to let Qatar send uh, money in. So you actually did have this inflow of money. You did have this kind of, and, you know, and, and Netanyahu was being cynical because he was uh, he was propping up Hamas, Hamas, but refusing to actually engage with them, as you, you would point out, maybe if you engage with them. But on the other hand, Hamas was also not wanting to engage with with Israel. It was happy for this situation where they get they were getting money and they could be you know use it to freely uh, train their troops and uh, build tunnels and and uh, and and get rockets. And so I think there, there's a kind of um, uh, there's 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 a even if you looked at Hamas as a, and and there are people over the years who have looked at Hamas as possibly being able to be moderated. There was a West Bank rabbi, uh, Menachem Froman, uh, who died a few years ago, uh, and he he lived in a settlement called uh, Tekoa, and his belief was that you should ignore Fatah, you should reach out to Hamas, and he actually had dialogue with not Hamas officials but Hamas clergy. Uh, because he said that that's the way forward, and he, and he actually pictured a binational state, uh, and he um, and so there that stream does you know it did exist uh, within a certain mm -hmm. narrow margin of uh, of Israeli thought, but the now other he was thing, was he a non-Zionist settler kind of? He was a, very much a Zionist settler. He, but he had a okay. very like, had a very different take on Zionism than a lot of other right. <laughs> Zionists right. do in terms of his uh, vision. I mean, he really thought that like the, the the state, the single state, should be run along Jewish and Muslim religious lines. For instance, mm -hmm. he pictured a kind of a semi-theocracy, duo-theocracy. Was I, I interviewed him, and he was the type of person you talk to, and he goes on for twenty minutes. You you know you can't. You can't interrupt him. And that was I, I, was I think I actually met him at the Parliament of the World's Religions about 20 years ago in Barcelona. But um, he, go ahead. It's the kind of thing he'd go to, right? Yeah, I think he, he probably he probably would have gone to that. But the uh, but the thing is, like I said, what I was saying is after October the 7th, it's like the that essential sort of rejection of Israel, dehumanization of Israelis, dehumanization of Jews. That's what's going to stand preeminently in, in Israeli minds. And. And Hamas yeah. has lent the justification to that now. It's very hard yeah. to, 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 to shuck that off. Well, yeah, one of my first reactions to the news was this is bad for the Palestinians. Um, I mean, uh, 
I was also appalled, although I wasn't fully appalled until I saw the videos. Uh, it was kind of abstract until then. Um, the uh, so uh, let's see, was there something else? I guess um, maybe it'll occur to me. Maybe we could switch to American politics. Mm -hmm. So um, how uh, you've written about some of the polling. Uh, I mean, there is, first of all, among Americans, broadly, uh, there's less support among young people uh, than uh, among older people. You know, I don't know, 30, 35, 40 or something is, is seems to be an important dividing line. Um, and, and to some extent, I gather that's true among Jews, although there I, I don't know that I've seen numbers so much. And I may be over extrapolating from what I'm seeing kind of at the elite level. I mean, there are these prominent activist groups, if not now. Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, magazines like Jewish Currents. So it's right. definitely a, a big, a big thing among young Jewish intellectuals to, uh, you know, to favor. First of all, I would say one state solution, even over two state solution. Um, and uh, how 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 big does the division within among American Jews uh, seem to you? I think that the 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 I mean it's hard to say because as you said there hasn't there hasn't been polling yet not that I know of in any case anecdotally in terms of conversations I think that um, Jews I know who have been critical of Israel to the right of if not now and uh, Jewish Voice for Peace have been nudged further to the right by this I think like, I mean, J, fucking, like J Street for example. Yeah. Yeah, I think that they're perceiving in the, um, uh, I mean, you notice that J Street has not called for a ceasefire, for instance, mm -hmm. and um, the, uh, they're, 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 they're talking to their relatives in Israel, they're talking to people, and they, they, they don't know what good a ceasefire brings in, in this particular circumstance. But I mean, it's not, it's more than that. It's also, uh, I just keep on, you know, <sighs> I don't want to name anybody because I, you know, but, but like there's like, like the person I'm going to be seeing after this when I said I had an appointment, it's like a, you know, somebody's like, it's a healthcare type appointment. That person is, you know, the other day after this happened, it just said, I feel so alone now. I felt alone during the Trump years, but I feel even lonelier now because I feel like I'm not getting it. Nobody's checking in on me from the left. And that's not entirely true. I know that there are people on the left non-Jews who are checking in with their their Jewish friends. But I, I just keep on hearing over and over again that, yeah, two friends contacted me. I have a lot of friends. This is a, a young woman I interviewed in Las Vegas for a story I want to write about what's going on in the community there. But just two friends called in. And I and she's, you know, this is a woman who's, uh, the woman I interviewed, who's very much on the progressive left. She's an activist. And she there there's this, there's this feeling of abandonment. I think there's this feeling of aloneness that is mitigated to a degree, I think, by... Um, uh, so I, I'm a little I'm not sure I'm clear on what the disappointment is. They had expected. So these are people left, but not far left, progressive, I, maybe J Street types yeah. who who were still hold out hope for two state solution yeah. and and uh, advocate for it. And who are what, critical hey, what of did, the Netanyahu government, very much sure. critical, and particularly in how it's not just in, you know, it's judiciary thing, but also in how right. it treats the Palestinians. And what had they hoped would happen? Who had they hoped would call and what what did they want them to say? I think they they didn't hope they were just considering afterwards. Wait a second, I've undergotten trauma. This person knows that I have family in Israel. This person knows that I've lived in Israel, okay. and I'm not hearing from them. And instead, and what's happening is also they're looking. This is like the curse of social media. 
They're looking right. at these people's Facebook pages and they're seeing expressions of supports for Palestinians. And they're saying, well, I never right. saw you say anything on October the 7th. I never, and I didn't even get a private message from you on October the 7th about how devastating this can be. I mean, right. this is, even for people who don't have uh, you know, relatives in Israel or who don't have immediate relatives in Israel who are the the the, the trauma of those visions of um, you know, just of the stories. The trauma of those visuals and of the stories that came with them are just so reminiscent of mm -hmm. of so much Jewish trauma. And, you know, it's like the sort of thing that you grew up with and you heard from your relatives and you got in Hebrew school and you said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And suddenly it's like, oh, my God, this really is happening in my time. These things that happened in the 1940s that I thought mm -hmm. would never happen again. Uh, not the not the whole, obviously, holistic thing of the Holocaust, but the particulars of of the utter dehumanization of people. Mm -hmm. Of, of children and of women, it, it's happening uh, again, and uh, there's just like a there's a, there's a residual trauma. Mm -hmm. well, let me actually drill down on that a little. So on both the Palestinian and the Israeli side, and and I guess that you could say the Jewish side, uh, there are these traumatic memories from the '40s. So for for Palestinians, you know, most as I understand, most Palestinians were expelled from their homes or for whatever reason decided they had better flee uh uh some by force uh, and there there was there was violence um and uh that happened in 48 uh and obviously the that was only a few years after the holocaust um and so you know people my age on both sides uh can probably you know may have uh parents uh, on the one hand say uh, yeah, we were expelled from our home. I was personally fled, uh, you know, on the Palestinian side uh, under gunfire. You know, in other words, you know, my father would be telling me that story uh, if if I were if it were Palestinian my age. And of course, uh, you know, uh, memories of the Holocaust works the same way. Uh, you know, somebody my age would have had parents, maybe lost siblings, whatever, could tell kind of firsthand stories. Um, uh, the the uh, yeah. This is maybe sounds like a technical and not very interesting question, but is the Jewish fear, the Palestinian fears of expulsion, and that's a residual fear, and that is activated by what's happening in Gaza when they say first you have to flee from the north to the south, uh, and and by what's happening on the West Bank as as uh, you know settlers uh, you know with guns get Palestinians to vacate homes. Um, is the fear on the Jewish side more one of actual annihilation? Like yeah, it's a like, erasure. So it's and it's not. I mean, it's funny because I had Danny Seidman on, who you probably know, uh, and uh, he, he. I mean, I, I said it's a fear of annihilation, and he said and of expulsion in the case of Jews, but fundamentally, it's a fear of annihilation, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, uh, um, you, you know, the um, the uniqueness of the Holocaust in terms of the uh, in terms of like the World War II context, and this is you know this is like Jews learn this if they're exposed to any kind of Jewish education is that as horrific as World War II was for every other population, there it wasn't a coordinated effect uh, effort to actually wipe this people off the earth. You know, even millions more Russians died, I think, than Jews. I'm not sure exactly of the numbers, but nobody was out to actually erase the memory of right. Russia to wipe wipe Russia out. Hitler right. had explicit plans to remove every Jew from the face of the earth. And that's like a, it's a very haunting thing to, to have to live with. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you can, you can manage it. You can say, 
until October the 7th, I think a lot of people could say, some people were still haunted by it. I think that that informed their politics. And some people could say, we have our state. We're strong now. We don't have to. Or, you know, even without our state, we're free in the United States. We're in a position of privilege in the United States. In the United States, we're, we're white and we actually have to, that, that, uh, that, uh, that means that we're not absolved of actually helping other minorities because we're white and we have those privileges. And that, I think, for a lot of Jews on the liberal left, that fell away to a certain extent. Not maybe completely, but it fell away after October the 7th. There's, there, it came across as if there's so, there are people who don't want to just have justice, let's let's say, some firm form of justice in the Holy Land uh, between Israelis and Palestinians, but who actually want to wipe out Jews. And... Um, and I think meaning, that's, meaning in this case, Hamas and their supporters. Yeah, Hamas and their supporters, and uh, and you know, you know, in terms of the you know the domestic politics, you're getting it. You know, you're reverberate. It's reverberating to a certain extent in terms of the um, expressions of support for uh, the Palestinians and Hamas, uh, and and what's are seen as support for Hamas on campuses here in, right. the, uh, in the states. No, and you mentioned the curse of social media. Um, I mean, first of all, I think there are a lot of people who just don't even understand that the Palestinian flag isn't the Hamas flag and that people who yeah. are supporting Palestine uh, don't support Hamas. But, of course, social media being what it was, you know, this guy at uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Jonathan. Yeah, he, of course, found footage of at some demonstration one person holding a Hamas flag amid a sea of Palestinian flags and didn't just say, see, this protest was pro-Hamas. He said, see, these protests are pro-Hamas when right. actually it would have been, he, you couldn't even generalize to that protest. But that is, you know, and this plays out on both sides. It's one, of, I think, one of the great sources of polarization. Uh, the fact that the least representative but most extreme version of anything is what gets promulgated to the other tribe Right. And they react as if it were uh, more general. Commonplace, um, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the most poignant things I've seen recently, you know, in the last day, uh, and we don't know exactly what happened yet in Los Angeles, but this man was mm -hmm. knocked down. A Jewish man was uh, 69 years old, was knocked down by a pro-Palestinian protester with a megaphone, and he fell backwards and died. Um, and one of the most poignant things that you see is two people rush to his aid, and one is wearing the Palestinian flag in a kafia. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, you know, obviously... That woman who was rushing to his aid didn't have the hatred in her heart that perhaps the person who knocked this person, right. this man, did, and that gets and, and you know that was like a snapshot. And I, and I did see people on the right actually noticing that to an extent, but that but it's like we forget about that kind of uh, uh, you know that element. You're right; it gets uh, it gets so polarized. You're either with us or against us, kind of kind of thing. So it sounds like you you would say most American Jews. Uh, are becoming more intense in their pro-Israel sentiment as a result of October 7th, a majority? Um, yes, they're, 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 they're becoming more, um, most American Jews are becoming, yeah, definitely, their feelings are intensifying after October the 7th, for sure. And then, uh, you know, the left, the young Jewish left, you know, and... Uh, you know, my daughters have been to some of these um, pro ceasefire demonstrations, uh, which to varying degrees are also explicitly pro Palestinian. Um, and, you know, they say all their Jewish friends are with them, they're on board. Uh, now, of course, my daughters are a particular cultural and ideological milieu. They live in Brooklyn. That's probably all you need to know, right? Uh, but um, 
but they're, you know, and they describe some of their Jewish friends as uh, being pretty, uh, I, I would say, radical. I, I don't think that's that typical or common. I mean, when you when you read like the uh, editor-in-chief of Jewish Currents wrote a thing right after October 7th, and, you know, she's has plainly had a big emotional impact. You know, she's having difficult conversations with with uh, you know relatives and 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 my daughter say a lot of them say that they're having difficult conversations with relatives. But um, and I guess we don't know how widespread uh, that is. I mean, I would say the the basic distinguishing feature ideologically is one state solution. Uh, they give the Palestinians in the West Bank the vote. Uh, I guess they'd say give it to Gazans to give them full political rights. Uh, if that means the end of Zionism per se, uh, I think they would say that's not necessarily uh, catastrophic for Jews. Um, is that your is that your read of kind of the ideology on the young Jewish left? I think the young Jewish far left, is, yeah, to, to, to you know to the degree that it applies to Jewish choice for peace, and perhaps if not now, yes, I think that that might. Be it, but I th I think that you know there was always like uh, you know one of the laudable things about J Street and its organizer Jeremy Benami is that his conference has always invited um, uh, ideologically different perspectives. You go to an APAC perspective uh, conference, it's all APAC. You go to a JVP conference, it's all JVP. If you mm -hmm. go to a J Street conference, everybody's there and they're duking it out. Uh, and it's interesting. It's like at least it's interesting for me as a journalist in terms of having to cover conferences, which I usually hate. <laughs> but uh, the um, the so the 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 interesting thing about that was what re, regarding the push and pull between two staters and one staters and what was just and what was practicable but and i think that the two staters after this i mean i think let's say it could be put this way the argument before october 7th was you know yeah a binational one uh, a binational state where everybody respected everybody and jewish rights were preserved and muslim and palestinian rights were preserved uh, and there was some sort of nod towards the Jewish law of return and historical Jewish. That that's a, that's a great idea, but practically this is a two-state argument. Practically, it's just not going to happen. And I think, in a sense, October the seventh, there might be even in that cadre, they might be returning to the idea that that morally it shouldn't happen as well because it's it's a kind of erasure. Uh, that now they identify with. Uh, it's not just abstract; they identify it with an actual action. And I think so you, that you think some former one staters are no longer one staters as, as a result of October. I think 7th. that well, some former some two staters who might have entertained one state as a mm -hmm. as a kind of utopian ideal or maybe even a practicable one are are going to be driven away from that. I think, uh, and I'm yep. I'm just getting that in private messages I'm getting from people, things like that. Yeah, that mm -hmm. uh, that that sense. I mean, don't and you think it's? Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, don't you think at this point two state is impractical as one state? I don't mean just after October seventh. I mean before October seventh. Is impractical? Uh, yeah, I think that they're both both <laughs> impracticable. But I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what the uh, the 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 situation had arrived to a point where it was unresolvable. Um, I mean, I think the two state argument that you know it would be really really hard now because there's settlements, but uh, really like now we're seeing in terms of the possibility for civil war and absolute carnage. One state is also, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know. Whereas before it was an abstract idea, you know, like do you think that we're going to really be Democrats, or do you think we're going to back go back before 1948, where you had the the carnage of 1929 and the Arab uh, anti-Jewish riots? And you know, it's interesting. Maybe we look at this polling, look at that polling. Now they're going to be able to say, 
looked at look at October the seventh, and it's uh, and it's just really really bad. Um, if you'll let me pause for a public service announcement right now. Uh, at this point in the podcast, uh, we take it behind a paywall. It's available only to subscribers, uh, paid subscribers to the Non-Zero newsletter. Um, with this, for now, with this set of conversations I'm doing about this particular uh, crisis, um, I'm not doing that. I'm keeping them all public. Uh, I would encourage people uh, to, uh, you know, if they want to just support this kind of conversation, uh, become a paid subscriber. You go to go to not Google Non-Zero and Substack or just click a link in your uh, podcast app. Uh, and there's a way to do that. And then you, you will get all the, uh, the, otherwise uh inaccessible parts of all podcasts and and all the print content in the newsletter is behind a paywall um uh so i encourage that uh, whether it's an act of philanthropy or uh or a commercial transaction um or you can just subscribe to the, the you can be an unpaid subscriber to the non-zero newsletter that's a start other ways you can support us are click the like button on youtube uh you do um you know, uh, actually rate and review us uh, on, on any podcast app, including Apple, uh, which is, you know, a little trouble to go to, but I think it does make a difference. And it, it, it keeps podcasts like this from being completely overwhelmed uh, by better funded uh, things emanating from mainstream media and so on. Um, okay. Thank you for pardoning that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I want to get back into the the uh, kind of American politics and American Jewish politics, but I will. I mean, first, like, if two states not practical and one state's not practical, that's bleak, right? I mean, that's a bleak future because right. because that's you know uh, I don't know. There's ethnic cleansing. There's apartheid. Is there a third option if you don't have a one state or two state solution? Um, I mean, you know, there's uh, if you if you've ever talked to Dalia Shindlin, and if you haven't, I highly recommend it. I've met her in Israel. Uh, yeah, in a there's the idea of a confederation. You know, that's uh, right. Uh, and so um, you don't consider that one state. She I mean, she has like a well worked out plan. Yeah, I mean, I, I consider it. It could be considered as one state. It's one of those things where you could actually say, if you want to call it one state, one state, call it two states, two states. It's kind of like, um, is it like Belgium? which is a kind of a confederation, or is it like Benelux, in which is, mm -hmm. you know, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg, which are essentially the same, uh, you know, territory for all intents and purposes. Uh, you can call it either one you want, and then, um, but at least you have um, protections for each population and and, and national aspirations uh, embedded into it for each population. I mean, so that's one possible, and I'm not recommending or not recommending anything. I'm just saying that that's like one yeah possible way out that doesn't have sort of like keep on running up into the wall of uh, ne never being resolved. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so I wouldn't say that it's necessarily uh, um, hell on earth for the next several generations. There might be a, there, 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 there are ways out. I mean, I think that so much of this is wrapped up, you know, part of it is wrapped up in theory and part of it is wrapped up in planning and policy, but some of it, so much of it is also wrapped up in, um, in personalities, you know, so, you had for the briefest of moments until the assassination of Rabin, two personalities who kind of knew what to say to the other population, Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin. And uh, and then Arafat 
sort of reverted to form after Rabin's assassination because he was he you know apparently because he feared assassination himself he thought if like if this could happen on the Israeli side it could happen on the Palestinian side uh and and so you know but even perhaps even personalities even more forceful than that saying what the other side nears needs to hear you know the the example and mm -hmm. I hesitated to use it because I know that to people who are uh, consider themselves to be oppressed hate it but like Nelson Mandela you know because they say oh you're always saying you want us to have a Nelson Mandela I'm not saying anybody should have a Nelson Mandela I'm saying Nelson Mandela was a successful model of how mm -hmm. to could, uh, convince yeah. the other population that they wouldn't be under threat um so it's it doesn't it's not going to happen in every conflict situation it's not going to happen out of every nation but that's one uh that's like uh yeah. i'm just pointing that out to show how unpredictable this can be somebody two leaders could come up at the both sides at the same time and suddenly have a solution could happen i mean the, the palestinians say that when uh some possible uh nelson mandela starts to arise that uh, the israelis in one way or another undercut him but um but the uh so uh, I know what question I, I meant to ask uh, a few minutes ago. It's about the fear of annihilation. Um, I mean, do you think it is more pronounced than is good for Israelis or more pronounced than is good for Jews? And I, I you know, there have been people in the community. I mean, Avram Berg, for example, who was speaker of the Knesset, I think, who used to say, you know, that there, there, there are too many kind of uh, indiscriminate appeals to the Holocaust, you know, for rhetorical purposes. It's not, it's like not healthy. And, and, I, and there has been this, there has been this, this argument made. And I mean, I think of this because I, I actually think, I mean, leaving aside the humanitarian issues you could have with what's going on in Gaza now, I, as you may have already gathered, I don't think it's good for Israel in the long run. And so I guess that's part of the context of the question of whether, um, and 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 you no doubt know that there are people who deploy the Holocaust pretty freely and prolifically and emotionally in ways that that work for them politically or whatever. Um, is is it is it in some sense overdone from the point of view of the actual interests of Israelis and or Jews more broadly? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that the. Uh... Uh, you know, there's a there's a whole debate within the Holocaust Memorial community about how how it should be properly um, um, uh, commemorated, and it's been going on uh, for decades. Uh, between you know, there's like between Yad Vashem, there's like um, uh, uh, the you know the main Holocaust Memorial Museum is in in Israel is Yad Vashem. And um, there was, I don't know if it still exists, but there was a small little uh, museum, a privately run museum in Jerusalem at the same time that would have alleged sh lampshades made from Jewish human uh, skin and uh, and that kind of thing. And the um, uh, and the um, Yad Vashem, the people were like, you know, that's not the way to commemorate the Holocaust. And that's mm -hmm. kind of story. The, the, we, we, you have to have a more holistic understanding. So, so you know, and that's that argument is still going on today uh and it's a question of degree and it's uh and you know to the degree to which trauma should for and it's it's, it's a founding argument in israel like uh you'd have the uh, labor left originally saying let's not let this define us let us let's this let's just be a nation among other nations 
Uh, it, it informed riots in the 1950s when Menachem Begin was leading opposition to uh, accepting reparations from Germany. His idea was that Germany should never, ever be accommodated. But Israel should never accommodate Germany in any way. And the, uh, and the labor left were saying, you know, let's, we have to put this behind us, get the reparations and 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 move forward so it's it's definitely something that uh, but it's hard to say where you draw the line I, you know that's mm-hmm. that's the thing i can certainly i could i could tell you about extremes like the guy who you know who ran the museum with the lampshades but i i don't know where uh you know in a in the center sort of where to the degree to what you do, should inform uh, yeah when i when i went to yad vashim this was decades ago i'm sure it's changed but i was actually impressed by how kind of understated it was um, I mean, it didn't, it didn't, I mean, you can't help but hit you over the head when you, when you're depicting the Holocaust, but it didn't, it didn't do any more of that than was necessary in a way. Um, and, and I think it was, uh, was it somebody from Yad Vashem who criticized the, uh, just recently, the Israeli ambassador to the UN uh, wore the yellow star of David, which Jews were forced to wear in Nazi Germany. Yeah, yeah exactly. UN. That's, that's a great example. I should have thought of that. That's a great example of how that is currently playing out um do you you know is really Gilad Erdan the UN the ambassador to the UN is he really somebody who's suffering to the extent that the uh you know are feeling oppressed or marginalized to the extent that Jews who wore the yellow star were feeling and, and should he be that graphic and so and the person um um uh <clears throat> Danny Dayan the uh the amb- the uh, head of Yad Vashem who himself had been a consul general in New York and he's a, he's a settler he's a Likudnik uh, or used to be a Likudnik. I think he's identified with another party now. He, I mean, but he's not, you know, he's not a raving liberal. He said, don't do that. That's just, it's too exploitative. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. Now, I want to, um, so you covered the the big demonstration in Washington. Uh, if I had known you were going to be there, I would have told my daughters to say hi to you. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, but here, here's a quote from your story. Another chant from the river to the sea is considered by many to be an anti-Semitic slogan calling for the elimination of Israel. I, I want to actually drill down on a couple of parts of that. What's your, um, well, first of all, I mean, I think we'd probably agree that some of the people, some of these young people chanting it means something different from what other people have meant in the past. What, what are the historical origins of it? Uh, I mean, was it originally flatly eliminationist or anti-Semitic or what? I, I don't know anything about the history of it. I, I, I want to get around to what it means to some of these younger people. But for starters, what would you have said, you know, 10 years ago, if you heard it, before it was adopted uh, by young the young left? I I think that um, I'm, I'm not that... Uh... That's why I think we we phrased it the way we did that it's perceived as anti-Semitic. I'm not that acquainted with its origins, but I do know that I, what I do know or what I, I'm pretty sure of is that it existed before 1967. It was mm-hmm. a uh, it was something that came up when the PLO was established in 1964, and to that degree, it's viewed as. Uh, but even if you take you know I mean I'm a, I would say as a journalist if, even if you were to take that meeting, you could say it's aspirational towards a democratic one state single state which is not mm-hmm. eliminationist of jews it's eliminationist of the idea of zionism you know which is mm-hmm. not i mean a lot of israelis would really say like you know that's also not good news but it's not spe- specifically eliminationist towards Jews. so it's become like a uh i think it's become maybe one of those things that's uh become a bludgeon a cudgel for both sides um you know i know that in in the particular instance rashida tlaib uh you know and she's 
she, she's been guilty of other things in the in this conflict, like um, in the in the current conflict in terms of her rhetoric. Uh, you know, I know from having you know seen her speak that her vision, and you can say it's completely impracticable and it's not a great vision. If you, but you talk to somebody like Andy Levin, for instance, uh, the Jewish congressman, former Jewish congressman from Michigan, who worked closely with her because they they have adjacent had adjacent just districts. She is not a uh, she. She envisions a um, a binational state where Jews have like national rights. She's not a um, she, she's right. not a in that terms of uh, her use of it. Yeah, uh, I don't think it's like uh, anti-Semitic or eliminationist. I would say she, but, she's, you. You think Marsha Blackburn's going a little far when she says Rashida oh, yeah, Tlaib yeah, supports genocide? I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. By, yeah, by the yeah, way, but, is 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 Blackburn Jewish? No, no, no. She's just she's just say it that way, but no, she's not Jewish. She's like a <laughs> she's uh but so this uh, is this is just crass. The the crass is kind of opportunism on her part. That's my comment, not yours. That, but yeah, go, it's go not, ahead. It's uh, go but ahead. The um, you know, the, the thing is on the other hand, um because it's associated with like the 1964 PLO and the, you know, the um uh which was an organization that was you know out to remove Israel, out to uh, you know. To a certain extent, that that embraced terrorism, um, it has certain triggers. I think uh, for for Jews when they hear it that are not are also not illegitimate. So you can simultaneously say that Rashida Tlaib is not an anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic, uh, but that there are substantive reasons for Jews to be wary of, or sort for like at least Israelis to be wary of the um, uh, of the slogan. You know, I mean, in in a, it's not exactly the same thing. It's not a, all the same thing, but it's the same way of understanding like. Um, you know, when people talk about like uh, wanting to remove Confederate symbols in the South, and there are people on the on the other side who are, who are say who are say this is Southern pride, this is local pride. Why are we, you know, why are they changing this street from Lee Highway to Langston Boulevard uh, when we've been used to it for so long? And you know, I I absolutely accept that the people who wanted to keep that street named Lee Highway are not racists, but you also have to understand how that name resonates among um blacks right. and like i said i'm not it's not a great precise analogy but i'm just talking about how uh certain things resonate for different people okay and then uh, the part of the sense where it says okay so it's considered by many to be an anti-semitic slogan calling for the elimination of israel what does the elimination of israel mean does that just mean the end of zionism or uh yeah i mean it could mean the end of zionism it could be i mean the thing is like what is the end of you know you have peter peter Beinart, for instance still calls himself a zionist um because he sees uh does he i oh yeah uh he calls him he calls himself a zionist because he, he calls himself a cultural zionist because he sees a place um for a okay, uh, okay. you know uh, uh for a national jewish expression within a binational state i mean it's not so far off from dahlia Scheinlin's uh confederation okay. that she um uh that she envisions and guarantees of uh of of, of a jewish national expression within that state um and then uh I mean, you know, you you it's there, mean, there are just so many, there's so many like variations on this. So there's that. But then there's like, is that truly practicable with uh with an organ with a with a polity that it holds within it uh a party, Hamas, that has a political expression of rejecting any kind of uh Jewish expression within the, that single state. So that's the and so right. people would say, you know, that people would call Peter a useful idiot in that sense. Yes, you're imagining this wonderful utopia where Jewish national expression can exist within a binational state, but really, you know, we have, the Hamas is the party that we have to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, 
But a lot of people, when they see the elimination of Israel, they think that of that is interchangeable with wiping Israel off the map. I mean, they, they, they take the elimination of Israel to mean uh, the destruction of the Jews in Israel. And there may be people in Hamas who would love that. But, but, but the point is that uh, most, you know, the people chanting from the river to the sea in the demonstration certainly don't mean that by and large. Um, and they right. mean they mean uh, a, a one state solution in which I think many of them, however naively in the view of some Israeli Jews, however naively imagine Israeli Jews having uh, full political rights along with Palestinians, you know, just like in America. I, I guess I mean let me let me go further and play editor and ask if it, it, it wouldn't hurt when you say uh, from the river to the sea is considered by many to be an anti-Semitic slogan calling for the elimination of Israel to say. Uh, the leaders of whatever, uh, attributed to whoever you want, leader, leaders of JVP or, you know, the people, many people at the demonstration uh, just mean uh, equal political rights for, uh, for Palestinians uh, that might uh, lead to the end of Zionism or something like that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it could, it could be, it would be useful to add that others see it as a, as a means of achieving a binational state where both peoples have uh have equal rights, something like that. That's, this, uh, this, this may be the high point of my influence in the world. If I've if I've altered uh, future renderings by you of uh, of, uh, of of the coverage of these demonstrations, I, I think I'll um, I can retire happy man. <laughs> um, the uh, so uh, you know it's uh, oh, I was also going to ask you. You like many people in the media. I noticed in this piece now refer to the health ministry in Gaza as the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza. I assume that's a consequence of that hospital bombing originally attributed right. to Israel and, and originally said to have uh, 500, 500 deaths or something. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's responsible for what is now, that's like a change of policy. Yeah, yeah, I think that, the, that um, you know, I, I don't want to like, be the person who says you can't trust anything they say, and it's necessarily going to be uh, 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 distorted. I think possibly when they say that there are over, over ten thousand dead, and I say that there, I mean, I'm, I, that's probably the amount that are dead. The, you know, the, the number of those who were combatants who were actually killed by Hamas fire. I'd imagine most of them were killed by Israeli fire because of the intensity of the Israeli bombing. But you know, with ten thousand, you can't put out ten thousand without noting that some yeah. were killed. By Hamas fire, I think all those I mitigators see. have to um, have to be in there. I see. So it's more about it's less about doubting the overall tally of deaths than about uh, the the attribution. Of the attribution, death. because there's you know, and I and I mean there there have been circumstances in the past where I would have insisted on saying that, uh, or I have insisted on saying that the army, um, uh, you know, the army says the Israeli army says right. such and such. Um, you know, I think you know, and it's it's just going to become more and more confusing and and hard to to pin down in terms of. I mean, you know, it's just a, it's it's almost disheartening. I mean, you know, the the one case, for instance, recently is that terrible, terrible murder of uh, Samantha Wall, the synagogue president in Detroit, and you're just getting this weird. And you know, she was. The police say that they don't think it was a a hate crime. She mm -hmm. was appeared to have been murdered by somebody that she knows because she allowed them into her 
house. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, I mean, they 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 think they did. They, there was no sign of forced entry into their house, and she actually the evidence suggests that she crawled out of her house after she was stabbed and died on the uh, on her walkway. Um, and so, but you're getting this just weird, weird pressure from the right, and not just from crazies on. <laughs> I'm talking like an old Jewish man now. <laughs> not just from the crazies on uh, on Twitter, but actual. So, you so know, I'll tell you, some of my some of my young Jewish friends after October seventh are talking like old Jewish men. So yes. don't don't worry. <laughs> but yeah, so you're getting like you know, oh no, how come the police? Why are the police covering this up? There's just this assumption it must be uh, a nationalist crime. So you really like it's just it's reinforcing for me that whatever the source of anything is, whether it's from Israel whether it's from the Palestinians, you have to attribute, you have to remain skeptical until it's actually um, known, uh, I think. Uh, and and I think that it's important for organizations like ours, like JTA, for news organizations, uh, to make that distinction, because when it is known, when there is actual facts, then they stand up. And so you, and it makes it easier to push back against this crazy interview between Glenn Greenwald and Roger Waters, I just saw where they're start saying, well, did we, did such and such really happen October 7th when there's like masses of masses of evidence that it, it does and we can actually move on and say that that Wait, Roger Waters was said was Glenn doubting it too? No, Glenn wasn't doubting it. Glenn was asking him, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? Mm -hmm. And he was like letting him sort of he wasn't contradicting him, but he was right. Him. Right. Roger Waters is, I would say, an outlier. Uh, but no, um, I know he's an outlier, yeah. but he's an outlier with influence and like it would be good. Yeah. It's important for us to us the media to have to be so really yeah. self disciplined and strict yeah. about this that that when yeah. when no. there are sources you can turn to. Yeah, um, no, I, I I try to be and 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 I mean I, I work hard to be and I and I'm and I just assume that when information is coming from one side, it will be in some sense filtered. And in other senses, amplified, and so it's 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 maybe disproportionate. I mean, in this case, uh, the only footage uh, you know I had to see was the footage from the concert. I mean, in the aftermath, uh, that, that was um, you know that was enough. Uh, but um, so wh where uh, how do you see this playing out for Israel? I mean, you know wh what's happening in Gaza. It, now maybe that the the bombing part. Is going to uh, at least at least be reduced somewhat in intensity as as the ground invasion picks up. But this this uh, it could go on a long time. And already, I, well, what's your take? Do you, do you think uh, it has already cost Israel a lot in terms of world public opinion? Um, yeah, right now for sure. I don't know how that you know. I don't. We don't know exactly how how it's going to level out in Gaza. What's the what the results are going to be? Whether um, you know the uh, what is it seven hundred or thousand so or six hundred seven hundred thousand people who've moved south, whether they they get back mm -hmm. to move north to what degree there's going to be rebuilding for them. Uh, I don't know. In other words, I don't know how long that's going to last in terms mm -hmm. of the uh, world opinion towards you know, um, you know, there's a what seems to be a very sort of callous way of putting it, but there's nothing succeeds like success. So if Israel does succeed in wiping out Hamas and then allows Gaza to rebuild itself, doesn't start up like a recolonized Gaza Strip as it had until 2005, as some are calling for. And uh, that, I think, yeah. So you, in other words, you see a normal Palestinian Gaza Strip after this without Hamas. And then I think that 
internationally, that looks like a success for Israel, but uh, there's no guarantee of that happening. Uh, do, you, you know, right? do, you, do you have a view of the, how the governance takes shape? I mean, Bibi just said uh, Israel may control it for some period of time. Um, obviously, in the long run, that doesn't seem viable to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's like a that's reoccupation and insurgency. Yeah. The biggest problem with reoccupation for Israel would be resisting resettlement. Because the Israeli governments and the Israeli army are just like, they're just not good at uh, keeping settlers out of territories that they claim should not be uh, settled. We've seen that in the West Bank. We saw that. We've saw, seen that in the, in the West Bank mm -hmm. going back in 1967. And then um, what happens is that you get a you get a situation that's even more intractable than a, than it was. Um, I think that. Uh, but on, on the other hand, I don't think you know. Take any. BB prediction right now with a grain of salt because as soon as this thing calms down, I don't think he stays in government. He's just so, so, so unpopular because uh he was already unpopular. You know, he was already like half and half popular, like not not at a good situation because of the judicial uh reform uh and how he was handling judicial reform. But this has just completely tanked him, I, I think. I mean, I could be wrong. I don't want to make absolute predictions, but I, I think his the the handling, I mean, whether he deserves it or not is another question, but I don't I just don't you know, Golda Meir now is not seen as having necessarily been responsible for the failures leading up to the 1973 war. But she just absolutely happily resigned afterwards, saying, I have to take this on to myself. And she resigned in 1974. And Netanyahu may not have that integrity, but I just Maybe. don't see how, how, he, um, how he gets out of, uh, how he survives politically from that, uh, from this uh, yeah. catastrophe. Doesn't this give him an incentive to sustain the war for as long as possible? Yeah, there are Israelis who are worried about that. I mean, uh, you know, I th I'm sure that there are Palestinians who are very worried about that. But I'm seeing, like, I'm seeing talk about it among Israelis that they're worried. But I don't know. I don't know if he, um, you know, does he uh, does he want to sustain a war that could even like further shatter his legacy? Right now, for mm -hmm. instance, he has like the Abraham Accords are hanging on by a thread, but they're there. They're still there. That is. Uh, that's a good, you know, that would have been in his obituary had this not happened, had this war not happened. That would have been the first paragraph, paragraph expanding uh, Israel's diplomatic influence in Europe and in Africa, but particularly among uh, in the Arab world. And does he want that completely shattered? You know, I don't know. I don't know what he's thinking of in terms of his uh, of his self-interest. Um, things are so changed. The um, as for American politics, this seems to me bad news for democrats i mean biden's got plenty of bad news as it is you know those the the polls that uh got so much attention in the five swing states the new york polls apparently i think those were done before october 7th and uh it seems to me that i mean even there's not a huge young lefty uh contingency that uh is opposed to his that really wants him to call for a ceasefire and 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 is opposed to his uh kind of uh, just about unconditional support for Israel, but um, it doesn't take many when you're, when, a, when an election's as close as this could be. Uh, and there's the fact that, I mean, uh, you, in pieces you've written, you see that although we don't have numbers for American Jews, maybe uh, just younger Americans generally are not nearly as supportive of Israel. Right. Uh, so I, I don't know, doesn't it seem like almost unequivocally bad news for Biden and Democrats or not? Right now, but like a year's a long time, uh, this, this, this war could be like, uh, ancient history. 
politically in a year. I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not that. Uh, you know. Then of course there's like uh, this whole argument going on now. There's like a bunch of arguments going on now on the, on the Democrats among Democrats that you're probably more tracking even more closely than I am. But you know, should Biden even run? Uh, but then the other argument is, should he run on his accomplishments or should he like just hammer the definition of Trump? And I, I remember seeing people think saying like, you know, polling wise, it's better if he hammers, if he defines Trump and defines terms and defines Trump ahead, like make it a uh, a referendum on whether you want Trump back. I don't know. I don't know what yeah. what what what, uh, what that holds. And then, of course, there's Trump himself. Like, you know, if he's convicted, does he uh is he even viable as a as a candidate? Is he legally viable? There's a Fourteenth Amendment challenge to him in Colorado right now. Um, mm-hmm. That's uh, those are all uh, open questions. He certainly does. I mean, I was at the Republican Jewish Coalition um, uh, event in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago, and um, he is the um, uh, he just seems inevitable. I mean, just going from the the donor class and the and the grassroots people who turn out of that yeah. kind of thing right now he seems inevitable and that's you know that's a plus for biden i guess i think in terms of although he is leading like you said he's you know in the those swing states uh, mm-hmm. trump is leading that's i think is it's too early to like to to show the to say those polls are going to be definitive i think yeah but if i had to bet i mean i hate to say this but i would bet that trump is going to be the next president it's it's uh i'm not happy about it um and I've long been encouraging Democrats to find an alternative to Biden on the ticket. But uh, shockingly, I have, my argument is not carried today. Um, so a, a couple of last just final things. Uh, uh, people use the word Zionism a lot. I think more use it than have a clear idea of what it actually means. Um, what What is the definition of Zionism to you? Uh, the definition of Zionism is the attachment of the Jews to the, uh, their homeland, which is the Holy Land, Israel, currently Israel. That's the ancient definition of Zionism. I think what people forget is that it manifested over the centuries in various forms. We have, we understand it. We say, it seems anomalous now because it's a, um, it's an expression of a post-Enlightenment type of nationalism, but that's because the only way you know that the Jews could express it in the 1890s or the 18 even the 1840s when they started this was in terms of framing it and because that's what the world understood stood at the time was post enlightenment nationalism but the you know the roots run deeper uh than that the uh, the attachment is just there's always going to be like a, a Jewish longing to have a um a presence there the the post the late 19th century uh mm-hmm. reality made it meant, meant that that should be a uh, a sovereign presence, but uh, you know the you know the one example I like. It's kind of uh, maybe a little obscure to non-Jews, but the uh, um, there are works written that uh, determine halacha, Jewish law, and the most recent work that was written that is universally from across the board accepted as halacha is the Shulchan Aruch, the Set Table by a, a scholar named Joseph Caro. And he wrote it in the 1500s and the 1600s uh, in the north of what is now Israel because he was backed by some Sephardic Jewish um, philanthropists who were based in Istanbul at the time who believed the Jews should have a, a place in Israel. So they brought him mm-hmm. to, to, to Israel to write it, to, to what was then, you know, whatever it was, Syria or Palestine, to write it. And and there, there was a community that arose around the scholars that were based there because of this uh, 
philanthropy by Donna Gracia uh, and her son, who were based in Istanbul. And just to show that this, you know, and then, of course, there's the 11th century poem by Judah Halevi, My Heart is in the East, who was he was living in um, in Spain at the time. The longing is not just theoretical. It was it's physical. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's that's what Zionism is. And that's uh, and I don't see that. Um, this, despite the the expressions of an anti-Zionist um, Judaism, and it's Judaism. I, I don't agree with these people who are writing who are trying to put these these like Jewish voice for peace people in in harem. You can't because they're Jewish and their 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 expression is Jewish. But I, I they're always going to be in the minority because the their 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 uh, their idea that the that the attachment to an Israel is theoretical or theological or it just doesn't hold and it's never held there's always been an effort for jews to come back to the only the only, the only 100 years ironically in terms of the current conflict the only 100 years or century or so that jews were not present in jerusalem were when the crusaders controlled it there's always been a jewish presence in jerusalem mm -hmm. other otherwise they and they came back after the crusaders left because it was so important to the jews so that's just it's never there's never and so how you define that how you define that sovereignty how you define that presence and that ability to make sure that Jews have that uh, attachment and maintain that attachment, that's a whole other political question. But Zionism in that as, as in that broad definition, it's uh, it's never going to go away. Yeah, but if if by Zionism, you you just essentially mean, as I understand you, a Jewish presence in the homeland and attachment to it, that could exist within a one state solution, right? That that yeah, would I mean, not you know, be it, the it, end of Zionism. I mean, maybe that's what Peter Beiner kind of means. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. You know, and you know, there are people who envisioned that. There were people, there were binationalists before 1948, like Martin Buber, uh, etc. It's just that, yeah, that's um, I think that most Jews would say that, you know, as far as utopias go, that would be wonderful, but it's it's not practicable now, and it's especially not practicable after uh mm -hmm. October the seventh. Uh, you know, yeah, but the the uh, uh you know, if you could talk uh you know the majority of israelis into saying look you can you can have this binational existence and still have sovereignty and still be able to pray freely at the western wall and still be a an instrument that would rescue jews in peril when they needed rescuing like in ethiopia in the 1980s or at Entebbe in 1976 those are like real marks of why israel is significant for jews um then you would have then okay then okay this binational thing might work but i don't see anybody i don't see any substantial portion of the jewish community or the israeli population uh the jew israeli jewish population buying that right now well also i think some people have a narrower definition of zionism and would and would say that current features of zionism are for example you can't immigrate to israel and become a citizen unless you're jewish right and and they can, would say it's much harder, but yeah, well, it's like yeah. A, I mean, there are these various kind of privileges associated with being Jewish in Israel, and they would they would see that as as part of Zionism, and say that if all that goes away, uh, they would say uh, Zionism doesn't exist. Uh, you know, uh, well, I mean, I, mean, I would I, say that's a particular, you know, that's a form of Zionism. That's an expression yeah, of Zionism. Yeah. I mean. Zionism, like I said, it encompasses, you know, Peter, who calls himself a cult, I think he calls himself a cultural Zionist. He hasn't stopped calling himself a Zionist. It encompasses Martin Buber. And not to say that that their visions are necessarily practicable, but I'm saying that that that's what Zionism is, and that's mm. what you have to contend with. Um, and, and you're not going to, you're not going to, if you were out to get to a binational state, I don't think you're going to persuade any Jews to back it if you say, and we're eliminating Zionism. You mm -hmm. can say that, uh, 
you know, we want to remove these, uh, what we consider to be noxious expressions of modern uh, 20th century nationalism, but you're not going to, you're not going to talk to persuade, persuade anybody if you're saying we're mm -hmm. taking Zionism out of the equation. Yeah. I, I know you got to go now, so we can't really continue this, but it does kind of trouble me to hear you say after October 7th, it's, this is no longer imaginable because, um, when I, I mean, just think in the short about, term right now. I mean, well, okay. I, I, okay. I mean, I just think, because I fear that more people are interpreting in the long term, I, right. As okay. This just proves it. They hate us. They want to wipe us out. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think it, uh, I can imagine so many ways that more enlightened policy on various sides could have led to a different present. And I would say, you mentioned the PLO, good example of a group that moderated over time. Oh, yeah. Given, yeah. given I mean, the right it, incentives it, that, remember, they used to kill civilians a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> and, I, and I mentioned the PLO, and I'll tell you, like, um, you know, as a Jewish community professional, which I was before I, uh, you know, in Australia, before I became a journalist, and as somebody living in Israel in the 1980s, like, you would be you'd be thought of as crazy or seditious if you talked about two states. Two states? What are you talking about? Two states? Right, it's crazy. Right. The Palestinians are gonna they're not gonna accept two states. They're gonna overrun us. It's gonna mean uh, mass murder and blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. And then like 1993, two states, and like everybody was accepting it. You know, it's like, well, and you know what? Some Palestinians will say who who whether or not they do support Hamas, and I, I'm not saying this to justify. I condemn all deaths of civilians, but they'll say. Israelis weren't talking about two states until we started killing civilians in the first yeah. intifada, right? Well, that's, that's, a, you know, that's they, a whole separate discuss, discussion. But right, I, but that, that's, that's, that's a, what they say. That, that's the source of a lot of like what went wrong. I, you know, right. I lived in Israel. I served in the army in Israel during the first intifada, and um, they, uh, the Israelis, I can tell you, perceived the first intifada as a kind of legitimate uprising that they might have that they, that they had in 1948 as a people mm -hmm. longing for a state because. Most of the targets at the time were military, and right. you could you could even be put on uniform and be a soldier and face those as I you know as I accompanied soldiers and look at them and say they're targeting us because we're occupying them, and mm -hmm. that's okay. Mm -hmm. And then in the second intifada, um, you had yeah. it manifesting as a um, as targeting civilians, and that's I think what sent the country right when they had that when they realized I don't know if they realized when they when they perceived that what they saw was an anti-occupation uprising during the first intifada was an anti-Jewish existing here in uh, yeah. <laughs> uprising in the second intifada. And so um, I think that that, you know, to do, and I don't think that necessarily that uh, that that's right. I think that there were, they're absolutely, I've met them. There were Palestinians who perceived the first intifada in the ways I described it as an anti-military occupation uprising, mm -hmm. not as an existential, well, you know, uh, zero sum one, but, right. uh, uh, you have to was, you have to fall away from those perceptions before was, you get. Was there forward. some targeting of civilians in the first intifada? There was there a targeting of civilians in the first intifada, and I think it should have been a that that targeting should have been a a, a red flag for both sides in terms of understanding um, how some Palestinians perceived Israel. I, I think the Palestinian hmm. leadership should have done more to prep its people for understanding that, that that kind of elimination and I, I think it did to a certain extent among the you know the Palestinian middle class the Palestinian Palestinian society is like this whole thing that I don't particularly understand but I do understand it's supposed to be very sort of stratified and uh, there's not there there are sectors that don't really talk to each other and don't listen to each other but I, I think that that it was a red flag that you know if there was a for instance a, some guy drove a, a bus off a cliff and killed 14 I think civilians mm -hmm. at one point in the first intifada and for what for what for me was like 
kind of scary at the time. I remember thinking that there was a song in his honor that was composed and started to be played in the Gaza Strip. And that sort of said, well, you know, maybe there are people who aren't perceiving this simply as an anti-military occupation uprising. Maybe this is, uh, mm. uh, there are people who are perceiving this as an ex existential struggle. And that's, I think, the failure to address that is um, by both sides and among both peoples, absolutely, is mm. what uh, is what led to the failure of Oslo. But in any event, you would agree that the first intifada, violence in the first intifada, if mostly directed at the military, not entirely, played a big role in leading to the Oslo process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what, you know, the, the Palestinians say is, uh, you know, uh, we're trying to get your attention. Uh, I mean, that's a, and, and again. Uh, and I, I, I think that that's why, against all evidence, some Hamas figures, you know, you're getting are getting this sort of absurdist uh, argument out going now. Oh, really? October the seventh, you really only wanted to kill uh, soldiers, but uh, some crazy civilians came along and they killed other civilians. Yeah. Uh, it, I, it doesn't fly. But I think what you're saying now is why they would want to rationalize it that way to the, right. to the West. I mean, I do think it's possible that they did not envision killing this many civilians because they envision more military resistance. But I think you're absolutely right. They didn't issue some advisory against killing civilians and and they expected some degree of civilian deaths. I don't think they expected the reaction they got. I, I don't agree that that BB's doing exactly what they wanted right now. But anyway. No, I don't know about that either. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I don't think they they anticipated the the full reaction. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ron. Um, the the uh, this is always, you know, very illuminating uh, when I talk to you. I hope uh, next time it'll be under happier circumstances. We may have to wait a while if that's going to be the case. So yeah, we'll let's be, do that. We'll both be retired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll call you from the nursing home. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But thanks, Ron. Oh, and people should. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, my Twitter handle handle is Campius K A M P E A S. But more saliently, they should also read our copy. We are a small team producing a mound of stuff, and it's good yeah. stuff at, at jta.org. Um, yeah, we're, we're nonprofits or an org, and it's jta.org. All right. Okay. Thanks, Ron. Thank you.